This is Writing in Real Life, a podcast about writing, parenthood, publishing, and marriage. I am Barry Liga, and across from me is my wife and my co-host, Morgan Baden. Hi, everyone. Hi. So, Morgan, uh, I've said before that I feel like you're a better host of this show than I am. Which, based on last week's episode, is not true. I have said this before. I said, like, you're, you're always prepared. You always have, like, a theme. You're, everything's connected. I have a theme for this week's show. What a copycat. And the theme, thank you. <laughs> and the theme is awesome. Sh- okay. <laughs> so the title of this episode is going to be the one with awesome. Sh- yes. Cool. So let's start with the most awesome of the awesome. Sh- okay. Twin Peaks is back. Oh, yes. I was sitting here like, where is he going to go with this? What, <laughs> what is the most awesome? I do think that's the most awesome. I am so happy uh, for people who have not seen Twin Peaks, uh, I'll, I'll, we'll put a link in the show notes to some basic information about it. But it was a show that lasted for one very short season and then one regular length season back in the halcyon days of 1990 uh, when I was in college. And, and when it, I was not in college. You were not in college. You, you were out of college by then because you're that much older than me. But anyway, it was mind-blowing. And I think when you look at it now... You go, oh, okay, yeah, it's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. But without having seen it in its context, it was so avant-garde and so weird and so disturbing and so strange. And it was on network television in prime time. Mm-hmm. And that blew my mind. There's a moment, uh, there was a moment during a recent episode. So Barry and I have been re-watching the right. entire series because right when we first started dating independently of each other, I, wasn't I rewatching? I was watching it for the first time, right? Well, I was rewatching it. You were rewatching it. I told it. you that you should watch it. Okay. Oh, did you tell me? Yeah. I thought I just sort of did it on my no. own. Oh, okay. No. Then never mind. That's not a great story. But <laughs> but for me, just to give some history, um, that was the first time I saw it. So about five plus years ago, and somewhere around episode 15, 14, 13, something like that, uh, I stopped. Right. Because <laughs> that's when it gets really bad. For those of you who don't know. Well, but you stopped actually before the revelation of the murderer. Yes, correct. Which was when the show was still good, but yeah, you that's true. but you know there's a lot going on, whatever. It, it and, and it, it's an acquired taste. Mm-hmm. It's a difficult thing to get into. Um, but for me, I was 18, maybe 19 when the show came on the air, and it just blew my mind in so many ways. And it it you know when I did that rewatch a few years ago when we first met and started dating, that was the first time I had watched it since it had been on the air. Yeah. Um, in, and it held you know, up, right? Well, it, it's not even just that it held up. Uh-huh. It's that in watching it, I remembered entire conversations in the show. Wow. I remembered blocking for scenes in the wow. show. Like that's how much of an impact it made. This isn't again. This is this predates streaming and and all that stuff. And it wasn't even for a while there. It wasn't available on on VHS or it was really expensive. Mm-hmm. It wasn't available on DVD for a while or it was really expensive. So, you know, I didn't watch it over and over again. I watched it once when it was on the air. And it made such an impact on me that, you know, 20 years later, I could still recite parts of it. Yeah. And and now it's back. And it's interesting because you and I did a rewatch. We did. So that you could become familiar with it. Right. With the whole series before we went into it. Right. And And I have to say, I enjoyed this rewatch so much more than I expected to. And it's found the years myself, of exposure to me. Sure, may, honestly, maybe. But I really found myself 
missing the world of Twin Peaks when uh, when we weren't watching it. Yeah. So like you know it's it's one of those shows, one of those pieces of art that um, really infiltrates you. And so as you're going about your day, pieces of it are just sort of like popping up at me. It was it was really neat. Right. So you get to the end of the series as it was originally on TV. And here's where we have to uh, say spoiler alert, because we're going to talk about the end of the original series. A Are we bit. really? Just a little bit. Okay. Just a little bit. Um, Wait, we're going to talk about the end of a series that aired 20 years ago? Are you sure 25 we should do this? years ago. 25. <laughs> so, yeah, if you haven't seen it, people, uh, you know, jump ahead five minutes in the podcast, whatever. Uh, you have nobody to blame but yourself. But it ends on a cliffhanger. How's Andy? How's Andy? <laughs> How's Annie? <laughs> really brutal cliffhanger. Yeah. And I remember watching you when we got to that moment because I wanted to see your reaction. Because this is the woman, folks, who when we did our West Wing watch, which Morgan had never seen, but I had, so I was re-watching and she was watching. Again, we're going to give a spoiler here for a show that's, you know, 10 years old. Um, we were watching it, and when Mrs. Landingham died, oh, yeah. Morgan oh. jumps out of her seat and screams, F*** you, Aaron Sorkin! <laughs> this, this is a true story. This is a woman who reacts passionately <laughs> to her art. So I wanted to see her reaction to the finale of Twin Peaks. And when we got to that last moment and the credits came up, <laughs> the look on your face, you looked like somebody had hit you in the head with a baseball bat. You just had this look like, what? And I looked at you and I very calmly said, I've been waiting more than 25 years for the finale to that, for the follow-up to that. And you looked at me and you said, People must have been really pissed. Right. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, was so interesting. Yeah. Because I was not pissed. Right, which is, I think, a, a unique reaction. I remember watching it in my dorm, and I remember getting to that moment, and I remember being so blown away by it, and just thinking, my God, the guts these guys yeah. have. They knew the show wasn't coming back. It's not like they were leaving a cliffhanger thinking they were going to get another season. They knew the show was over. Mm-hmm. And instead of trying to wrap it all up, they just said, screw it. <laughs> We're going to leave people hanging. Mm-hmm. We're going to give people something to think about. And you know what? I've thought about it almost every day for 25 plus years. Is that true? Yeah. Like literally every day? I mean... So, like, the day that I like, was giving like, let's birth say to once your a child, week. you were thinking about it? No, oh, exclusively. <laughs> I wasn't thinking about the kid at all. But it was... I know some people were upset, but I felt like it was a gift in a way. Really? That it was this thing that 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 I could turn over and over in my head forever and never know what the answer was. Mm-hmm. But do you see how... That sets you apart from people. I do. And then you said something else. Because when I told you I wasn't pissed. I said, this explains so much about some of the endings of some of your books. <laughs> I think what you said was, this explains a lot about your writing. Oh, okay. I don't there even think go. you yeah. were as specific as well, the ending of my book. You know, I don't know how many of your listeners know this, but Barry gets a lot of fan mail from people saying, like, you really left me on a cliffhanger there. Well, and, and especially, you know, especially in cases where it's not supposed to be a cliffhanger. That's what uh, I mean. Yeah, like, like you know, the, the, the end of the second book in the Island Killer series is a cliffhanger, a brutal one, but there's a third book. Right. But people will write and complain about books that 
aren't really cliffhangers. Yeah. They're standalones. And and to me, this is where I guess this is where I diverge from so much so much of our pop culture. You know, somebody once said, and, and I'll, I'll try to look it up and put in the show notes exactly who it was. Somebody once said, endings to be useful must be inconclusive. Mm. And I know that the books that I read as a kid and that had the biggest formative influence on me were the ones that left me, I don't want to say hanging, because that feels like that feels like they took you up to the cliff and left you there. But rather books that left me with questions. Things that I wanted to think about. Sure. And those are the ones that, that most impacted me. And Well, but I think it's more than that because I think every piece of art, well, hopefully every piece of art is leaving you with some kind of question or some kind of response or, or what have you. But I think what you're saying is that, and forgive me for speaking for you, but it sounds to me like you're saying that you don't mind or maybe even you prefer when a book doesn't just leave you with questions, but purposely leaves open plot points so that you can think about them on your own well i mean it has to be the right plot points okay you know i've been annoyed in the past by books that say here's the central premise of my story and then never resolve that central premise Mm -hmm. that's annoying you know the central issue of twin peaks was who killed laura palmer and you find that out and they gave us an answer that's true they Um, gave us an answer that was not left hanging mm -hmm. they gave us the who the what the why the when the how everything and so I have no quarrel there. I like it when a story repays my attention. Okay. Um, I got in trouble on Twitter once for saying something like, you know, I don't understand why you would want to be given all of the answers in a book. Like yeah. the joy of reading a book is thinking about it and coming up with your own answers. Sure. And a lot of people just attacked me for that saying, what about just simple entertainment? What about simple enjoyment? And I'm like, yeah, that's. That that is my definition of entertainment and enjoyment. Um, well, because I ha- I totally understand your point and agree with it to an extent as well. But I also like endings. Yeah. And I think as I've gotten older, the uh, of course, like as you get older, you sort of realize, oh, after the ending, there's a whole other story. There's yeah. multiple. There's infinite other stories after exactly. the ending, and that's cool to like. I, I think as you as you evolve as a reader those alternate endings or those infinite endings or infinite stories become the cooler part of the book almost. Right. But I do like, I do like certain things to be resolved. I think, I think the problem that I have is with, and I see this more and more now over the past 12 years, I've seen this get worse and worse. Yeah. Um, People want definitive answers, absolute definitive answers to every question they have. And then they get upset when they don't get them. And I get so many emails from readers saying, well, why did this happen? And my answer is always, think about it. Read the book again. The the, the answers are all in there. I didn't spell them all out, but they're all in there. And it's sort of, you know, it would never occur to me to write to Stephen King, for example, and say, (laughs) hey, why did this happen in The Dark Tower? Like, no, like that's my job as the reader to think about that a little bit, mm. to give it a little more thought. Why do you think it's changed? I think it's changed for a few reasons. I think the biggest reason is social media. And I know I beat up on social media a lot. And this is not, I'm really not, I'm not, <laughs> no, you're not. saying kids get off my yard. I feel like this is a bit of an easy answer. It to probably is. But the fact of the matter is authors are more accessible than ever. 
because we're on Twitter and we're on Tumblr and we're on Facebook. And so if you're a reader and you finish reading the book and you have lingering questions, you have, you have two choices. You can go, oh, I'm going to go back to page one and read this book again and really think about it. Or you can say, hey, I'll just email the author or I'll just tweet at the author and say, hey, why this? Why that? Yeah. Um, and, you know, human beings are, are lazy. So they take the easy way out and they, they tweet, hey, at Barry Liga, you know, what is the central theme of all of your work? In 140 characters or less. Um, well, that's someone trying to get their homework I know, answered. I know. I know. I'm joking. <laughs> but, I mean, I think that's. I think it's an accessibility See, thing. See, and I think it's more... Well, it's not that I think this. I think this is an interesting theory that I just came up with here on the spot, which is that as the world gets more complicated and globalization is happening and people are sort of um, more aware of our problems and our interconnectedness and all of that, do you think maybe there's a a reaction of, well, my art needs to be more simplistic and my art needs to have finite closed answers, my entertainment, you know, because I'm dealing with enough of this shit in the real world. So I want my book to, to wrap up nicely with a big red bow. That could be. That that could be entirely. Um, I, I'm, and I'm speaking from personal yeah. re- meaning that here. Could like be. Maybe I mean, that's I, where I'm coming from. I, I would argue that the more complicated the world gets, the more complicated art should be. Sure. Well, um, certainly. You know, and and needs to be, uh, you know, at its best, art can be a training ground for life. Um, I don't know. I I just, you know, it really is just a a disconnect, as you noted, when Mm -hmm. the show ended. And I was like, no, I loved that ending. Um, I'm trying to think of, like, the X-Files. Right. Obviously, there were some open questions at the original series finale, I should say, because now there's been a couple of resurrections. Um, I'm trying to think of if there were... a cliffhanger to the extreme right. of the Twin Peaks cliffhanger, right. what would my reaction have been? Well, also... And I think I would have been angry. Also, though, X-Files, forgive me, limped to the finish line after several subpar That's seasons. That's totally true. Twin yes. Peaks had maybe 10 bad episodes and then finished very strongly. I yeah, think. but I mean, they had one outstanding season yeah. and then one crap season. The X Files had seven outstanding seasons. Keep and then telling yourself that. Um, you've never seen it. I've seen enough. Oh, bull! <laughs> I'm bull. not doing an X Files rewatch. There's too many of them. <laughs> no, way, I agree with that. There are way too many. Too many of I'm them. not doing it either. So, in the vein of Twin Peaks, I do want to talk about something here, which is what Twin Peaks reminds me of in when it comes to storytelling. Mm-hmm. Which is two things that we've talked about before on this podcast. One is the leftovers. Yeah. And what an incredible storyteller uh, those writers are. And the second one is Mad Men, which, wow. I, you know, obviously an incredible show. Um, probably one of my top seven or eight shows of all time. And the reason that I loved Mad Men was because they did such flawless storytelling that you had to pay really close attention. Right. And that's how Twin Peaks is for me. Like You can't you can't watch Twin Peaks or Mad Men with your cell phone. Exactly. You know? Yeah. You can't live tweet. Yeah. Like I just think you're losing a lot yeah. when you're doing that. So um, Yeah, and I mean those I think those shows owe a debt to Twin Peaks. Absolutely. I mean I think you can draw I mean, shows like Lost, The Leftovers, Mad Men, the X-Files. I mean the X-Files for sure, yeah. Um all of those shows, their DNA is from mm-hmm. Twin Peaks. Yeah. And one of the, I, I've been deliberately not reading a lot of the commentary on the new Twin Peaks because I sort of just want to go into it with my own thoughts. Yeah. Uh, but I did see one thing where somebody somebody was saying that, that the new show was just okay. And the point that they made was when Twin Peaks first came on the air, 
it created its own genre. Okay. Now it's just another show in that genre, which I think is, is an interesting, it's a nice, interesting way of putting it. Yeah, sure. I don't necessarily agree with it. Right. Um, but. Well, I, as of this recording, we are four episodes in to the new Twin Peaks. What are your reactions right now? Um, I thought the first two episodes were great. I thought the third episode was incredibly uneven and didn't feel like Twin Peaks to me. Mm-hmm. The whole time we were watching it, I was thinking, this this isn't Twin Peaks. Hmm. The characters from Twin Peaks are in it, but it's not Twin Peaks. Yeah. By the end of the fourth episode, I was I felt like they You're rallied. Back in. Yeah. And you know, it, it's a tough thing yeah. to to bring something like this back. And I felt by the end of the second episode, there's a weak gap between two and three, and I. Felt like I knew exactly where they were headed. And I was a little disappointed. I was kind of proud of myself that I'd figured it out. But I was also disappointed that I'd figured it out. And with the fir- in the first 10 minutes of the third episode, they blew my theory completely <laughs> out of the water. And I was like, oh, good. That's funny. It reminds me of something my twin sister always says about Tori Amos, who's, as, as you know, our favorite musician. And um, Tori's lyrics can be a little bit out there or a lot bit out there. And Kelly once said something about how the, her favorite thing about listening to a new Tori song she hasn't heard before is that she starts to think she knows the next line Tori's going to say or, like, where the song is going, and she's always wrong. And she likes being surprised like ah. that. Like, she always thinks if this were a pop song on the radio, right. the next lyric would be this. Yeah. But because it's Tori, it's not at all. Yeah. It's the opposite. So That's funny. That's an example that I often give to kids when I talk about where stories come from and where ideas come from. Mm. And I tell them, I say to them, have you ever had the experience of listening to a song and you're singing along with the lyrics and then you realize you're singing the wrong lyrics, Uh but you like yours better than the (laughs) the song and everybody nods because everybody's had that experience. I tell them that's how you create a story. You know, there's something out there in the world that you're reacting to, Mm -hmm. but you're putting your own personal spin on it. I like that. Um, so yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to talk too much about Twin Peaks, but all I want to do is talk about Twin Peaks <laughs> because it really, you know, I mean, I, I tweeted at Mark Frost, the the co-creator, the guy who actually came up with the show and uh, who writes it, and I just said to him, you know, I, I realize I've been waiting most of my adult life. That's crazy. For, you know, I tweeted him the night the night the show was was coming back. I said I've been waiting most of my adult life for tonight. Um, you know, and uh, it's been a big influence on me as a writer. And it's funny because when people say, you know, what are your influences? I always think to comic books and I think about Bruce Springsteen. Right. And those are really big influences, definitely. Um, but Twin Peaks should be on that list because yeah. it's a huge, huge, huge influence on me. Yeah. Well, it, for me, as a relative newcomer to it, it's a really nice lesson in patience when it yeah. comes to work. Um David Lynch does some, he really tests you a lot and you have to be all in. And that's why it's, like you said, it's not a show that you can be multitasking while you're watching. Um, So you just sort of, especially with these new episodes, I'm really enjoying immersing myself in them and just focusing fully on them and getting a lot of, a lot of rewards. Even if it's just a guy walking down the street exactly, and he's following the guy and you have no, and it doesn't matter. Uh There's no reason, but you know, it's all to set you up for something else, right? you know, to lull you into this false sense of security. And then the next time the guy's walking down the street, the street's going to grow teeth and eat him. Right. And you're going to be caught completely unaware because the last time nothing happened. Uh And it's, it's a really different way of thinking about storytelling um, than, than what we typically uh, do in, in this country in particular. So I, I really like it. Good stuff. Yeah. So 
If you haven't watched Twin Peaks, please do. Um, moving on, more awesome shit. We need a jingle. <laughs> um, I want to talk about being a geek. Okay. Because being a geek is awesome. Um, especially now because geeks rule the world. Yeah. Uh, believe me when I was, you know, in eighth grade and getting beat up cause I read comic books, uh, it, it didn't seem all that cool, but you know, now it's pretty awesome. I do have to say, dear listeners, it is fascinating as someone who didn't grow up with a comic book bent at all. Um, I recently read my first comic book to be honest, uh, <laughs> and only read my first graphic novel a few years ago, but it is really fascinating watching your reaction to when certain comic things happen in yeah. pop culture and in current events, because the number of times you've said something like, God, if eight-year-old me had known that this was going to be the biggest movie of the year or that, right. you know, I would be able to find T-shirts with all of these characters on them for my kids, like, things would have been different. Yeah, I mean, it's... Yeah, I mean, I would have killed to have had, like, a cool Superman t-shirt as a kid, but right. they were all stupid and dumb. <laughs> and now, most of them are still stupid and dumb, but there's so many of them that, inevitably, <laughs> there's some cool ones, uh, which is nice. I, um, be, you know, being a geek is cool. I'm I'm glad, you know, I mean, when I was called a nerd and a geek in high school, it wasn't cool and it wasn't fun, but I am I have no problem with it now. Um, and uh, But one thing makes me sad, and that is an article that I read... Uh, on the millions, and it was titled "Dragons Are for White Kids with Money," on the friction of geekdom and race. It was by Daniel Jose Ruiz, and uh, it just made me sad because it was about how how you know difficult it was for him as a I guess the term would be geek of color, yeah. um, you know, because his friends who were were Latino as well would mock him for being into this geeky stuff because it was considered white mm -hmm. and white and kids, he, right. white kids. Either would wouldn't, wouldn't either wouldn't accept him because he wasn't white, or they would, but they. I, I don't know how to put this. You know, I mean, there I'm, were qualifications. I'm, they, well, yeah, there were qualifications. I, I, I'm sure there's a better way to put this. Forgive me, but they they wanted him to be geek only, and you know he would say to not bring his lens to not into bring. It. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, huh. And and that that disturbed me. You know, he he gives an example of you know he could run a Dungeons and Dragons game where his white you know co players would be outraged by how half elves were being treated because they're a different race. But then if he tried to talk about how he's treated differently, right. they would be like, "Shut up, just play the game." Right. Um, which was sad, and and it it particularly struck me because um, when I was growing up, you know, I had maybe. Four other friends who were into the stuff I was into, and of those four, two of them were not white. And you grew up in a tiny, <laughs> and rural, I grew up in white a town. very white town. Huh. Um, my best friend, who was Filipino, was into comics as well, and um, there was a, a guy uh, older than me, um, probably three or four years older than me, who used to hang out at the comic book store I hung out at, who was black and was into all the same stuff I was into. And so it never occurred to me to to exclude them in some way. It never occurred to me that that what I was interested in was was white. Yeah. Even though obviously, like most pop culture, it was incredibly you know most of the characters were right. white men, obviously, um, which is something you know was, as a white guy it was very easy to be blind to. Um, but the message of comics was always in the comics themselves, if not in the industry, was of inclusion. Mm. I mean, you know, there were always these stories about, you know, it was it was always metaphorical, but, you know, this alien is okay. Right. You know, he's yeah, an alien, no, but he's okay, true. you know. Um, 
you know, there was a whole race that was prejudiced because they were pre that had prejudice against them because they were alien. And my favorite superhero team said, oh, hell no, we're going to make one of them a member, mm -hmm. you know? And so yeah. he was a member of the Legion of Superheroes, even though everybody in the galaxy hated that race. Um, and so that just never occurred to me. It just made me really, it just, it made me sad that this is out there, that this, that this is something that people are experiencing. And I know that you know, probably some people are listening and rolling their eyes and going, oh, God, this white guy's just figured out. That, you know, <laughs> no, I haven't just figured this no. out. Just this particular essay was very well written. We'll put a link in the show notes. It really drove it home to me. And especially, you know, I, I had a friend in college who was into a lot of this stuff. Um, and after college, um, wrote an essay, actually, about how, you know, she'd been into this stuff in college, but the white geeks never even talked to her about it. Mm. And I felt bad because I never talked to her about it. Cause I didn't know she was into it. Yeah. Like I just wouldn't make that assumption that somebody was into star Trek or star Wars or anything like that, especially again, 25 years ago when it wasn't cool. Yeah. And my assumption was everybody thought I was weird cause I was into right. it. Right. Um, and then I felt bad that, you know, they felt bad that they felt bad. Yeah. Um, you know, geek stuff is for everybody, you know, I mean, the only reason you, you, you kick somebody out of the club is if, if they, uh, you know, think that the post-crisis DC universe is better than the pre-crisis DC universe, which is just wrong. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, I know. So, you know, and yeah, th those people you can beat up. But, you know, this is really cool stuff and it's fun stuff and it's bigger than ever. And now is not the time to tell people, no, you're the wrong kind of geek. What, you're, what you seem to be saying is that in your experience... And your wish, comics and comic books and superheroes should unite people. I mean, ideally. Yeah. I mean, and, and I understand. I mean, again, before people send hate mail, I understand that there are uh, both racial and gender problems oh, with with the superhero in general. I get that. I'm not blind to these things. Um, but at their best, at their best, superhero comics in particular have attempted to include. Um, they've always done through done so through a lens of whiteness because mm -hmm. most of the creators were white and most of the characters were white. I get that. I remember I worked in a comic book store one summer in college and uh, an issue of Superman came out where there was a, uh, a, a racist supervillain who was trying to kill Superman because Superman was, you know, an alien, right? He was alien trash, right? And I was working behind the counter and I got a call from the local TV station. Apparently a parent had read this comic and was very upset there was racial epithets in it. Okay. Um, and the reporter, instead of just coming to the store and buying a copy of the comic and reading it, <laughs> was trying to get me to describe. Oh, God. <laughs> and, and clearly, like, there was some miscommunication there. And this person thought that Superman was using racial uh, epithets. Okay. And I was saying, well, no, Superman's a good guy. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's this, this bad guy who's saying these things. And the person kept trying to get me to say, well, what sort of epithets does he use oh my god and i'm like well you know he's called superman alien trash and you know you know unearthly on this page and he says this and this and the guy's like well what else does he say clearly trying to get me yeah. to drop the n-bomb wow and i realized very early on what this person was trying to get me to do mm -hmm. and you know because then the, the the headline the next day would be you know children's comic uses right, this yeah. word you know which the word was not in there um all of the racial epithets and everything were of the of the ilk of alien trash. Okay. Um, and I just kept playing dumb and saying, Oh no, you know, he says this and this and this. And finally I dragged it out so much that the person just said to me, look, Do say does he say, yeah. does he say this? 
And I went, nope. And he hung up. Wow. Because it was, it was a sensationalistic story that died. You know, this yeah. person thought, oh, I'm going to make my bones on there's a Superman comic with the N-word in it. Yeah. And there wasn't. Huh. Um, and I don't know. I mean, you know, in that moment, I was trying to explain to this person, you know, there was a, you know, famous issues of Justice League in the 60s where the Justice League, you know, there was an issue called, you know, Man, Thy Name is Brother, which had kids of all races holding hands on the cover. <laughs> you know, there were PSAs in the comics where, you know, Superman would say, you know, anybody who hates somebody because of their religion or race is not an American, uh, which, by the way, is coming back nowadays. So I've, relevant today. I have actually seen it a lot on Twitter. Wow. Um, so... Be cool to your fellow geeks. Include them, whoever they are. Because yeah. this is awesome stuff. I, it's not the same, but after I read this essay, I did start thinking about the things that I grew up with that I loved that are have race problems. Right. <laughs> and, like, a lot of them do, sure. of course. Because, yeah. you know, it was the 80s and the 90s. Yeah. So, yeah. Sweet Valley High, man, I loved you, but we got problems. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Beverly Hills 90210. Problems. That had problems from the get-go. It did indeed. (laughs) (laughs) All right. With that, we're going to bid you a fond farewell for this episode of Writing in Real Life. Uh, Visit us online at writinginreallife.com. Follow us on Twitter at WIRL Podcast. And, uh, you know, read our show notes. Send us email. Let us know what you want us to talk about. And uh, more importantly, subscribe to us on iTunes and give us a a nice juicy (laughs) flame grilled five star rating we would love it and i want to say hi to all the new listeners we've gotten some really great tweets and things recently yeah um from people who've just found the podcast i think we were worried that when we went on an extended hiatus yeah uh and then came back that we might you know it might be a little tough to get new listeners and that sort of Uh thing and especially you know we're up to 80 some episodes now that that can be intimidating for people but uh but no that's great we appreciate you thank you very much take care everyone we'll see you in a couple weeks